Talking Business. This is Business Now, AsiaPacific.com. It's Thursday, October the 8th, 2020, and welcome to BNAP Today. I'm Mike Ryan. Even though the next story is from the US, it applies to businesses worldwide. In America, small businesses struggle to stay afloat as financial relief from Congress stalls. Over 8 million restaurant jobs lost or furloughed. $165 billion lost in restaurant sales. And about 100,000 restaurants are closed due to the effects of the pandemic. More from CNBC. Forget corporations for a minute. Think Main Street with me. The company you worked for shut down in COVID. You don't get a paycheck or government relief, so you sure don't go to restaurants. Those restaurants close and fire their workers, then they can't spend around town. That's called a small business death spiral. Here's CNBC's Kate Rogers with one restaurant's dilemma. We sanitize the top. The losses for business owners like San Francisco restaurateur Johnny Matheny are piling up. He already cut his workforce from 80 to 6 across four locations and is desperate for financial relief. I feel betrayed and let down because I keep thinking and believing and knowing we were forced to be shut down by politicians and the government and for them to decide not to even negotiate to help the country right now, the country of small businesses, which is, I believe, the backbone of the, of the, um, the American way. The numbers are staggering. In the restaurant industry alone, over 8 million workers furloughed or laid off at the height of the pandemic. $165 billion in sales losses from March through July, and 100,000 locations completely closed, according to the National Restaurant Association. A large portion of them expected to become permanent, as the cooler months limit outdoor dining and lawmakers struggle with a stalemate over stimulus spending. And Matheny certainly isn't alone. The National Federation of Independent Business reports that about half of its small business members that received federal aid say they'll need more help in the next 12 months. And what's worse, about one in five say they'll have to close their doors for good if economic conditions don't improve in the next six months. Jeff? Wow. Kate Rogers. Joe Bordeaux is a partner with Premier Franchise Advisors and has a 45-year business career that includes significant experience as a successful franchisee and franchisor. Joe served two terms on the IFA's board of directors, was chair of the IFA Diversity Institute, a member of the IFA Education Foundation Executive Committee, and was vice chair of the Franchise Relations Task Force. First of all, Joe, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back with you. Yep. Lovely, uh, beautiful day here. And uh, yeah, it looks like a pretty nice day in uh, St. Pete also. Yep. Still summer here. So it's 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Today, wow. So. That's just wonderful. <laughs> I, can, I can hear the barbecue in the background uh, sizzling away. <laughs> Look, we're now roughly six months into the global COVID crisis. Do you know more about how franchised businesses have been affected by this terrible disease? Well, uh, they have been impacted, no doubt about it. Our timing is good on this because the International Franchise Association and Fran Data, who is really an authority in this space, uh, published uh, some research results uh, on a webinar last week. Uh, that information is available online, but I pulled out a few uh, high points for you because I knew you were going to be asking this question. Uh, to set the, the picture for you, here in the United States, 
uh, as we headed into 2020, at the beginning of the year, there were 773,600 franchised businesses across the United States. Now, within the first six months of COVID, uh, during a time where there was a significant uh, support program from the federal government uh, called PPP, during this time, 32,700 franchise businesses closed. And at this point, 10,875 say they have closed uh, permanently. Um, this has affected three quarters of all franchise businesses. There's about 25% of them who have not really been impacted due to the nature of the business uh, you know, that they're in. But three quarters have been impacted. Um, and uh, only about 25% of those have returned to their normal year-over-year monthly revenue numbers. So this has been a significant impact. Uh, revenues are down totally across franchising $185.3 billion as a result of this. One of the uh, concerning things, an additional concerning thing, and we'll get to some good news later, uh, the uh, Small Business Pulse Survey conducted by the U.S. Census uh, predicts that one in 20 small businesses, not just franchises, but all small businesses, one in 20, will permanently close as a result of this when all is said and done. And uh, that, if that's true, that would be another 36,000 uh, franchise businesses uh, closing to go along with the 10,875 that have already closed permanently. So that uh, looks like where the number is going to shake out. We obviously know this is not a uh, happy picture. Uh, at this point, uh, Congress in the United States has not been able to get together with the president on another much-needed uh, financial support program. That's kind of temporarily dead in the water, at least uh, as of this evening. Uh, but uh, who knows? But uh, we still have, uh, you know, rough times to go. Uh, we still have a, a impact of COVID uh, hotspots. Uh, now states in the Midwest uh, are seeing some big increases. So uh, just like uh, many other places around the world, uh, we're still very much uh, in this uh, challenging time. What's the mood out there at the moment? It must be really tough to stay positive. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that Generally speaking, franchisors and franchisees are kind of a tough lot, and uh, they tend to be uh, optimistic and 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 to try to stay positive. Uh, you know, some good things have happened, as as we discussed on some previous uh, calls. Um, as franchisors and franchisees have needed to become creative, they've come up with uh, virtual programs and processes, sometimes new products. There's some really cool things, you know, that have happened that, uh, you know, while they've been not enough to bring things back to normal, uh, they still, I think, bode well for the future when we do come back to normal because uh, companies may be running more efficiently. They may have created some new products or new ideas that uh, they went ahead and rolled out during this time. And uh, so that's that's the positive um, side. And uh, uh, and again, um, most franchisors and franchisees uh, do not have the option of uh, failing. And uh, so, you know, they have to do the best they can uh, to survive and thrive during this period. What about franchise development? Are people still looking at buying into franchised businesses, even with COVID still raging and it's 
just uh, it just won't 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 lay down and die. COVID, it's just getting stronger in parts of the world. Exactly. Uh, interestingly enough, yes. I mean, uh, franchise development is still underway. Most companies are, are very active, um, you know, at this point. Interestingly enough, when we, we looked at the numbers in the first quarter of this year, uh, you know, there were there were some companies seeing a reduction in, in leads uh, for prospective franchisees. The brokers were reporting some of that. And the conventional wisdom was that every, uh, employment was so high in the United States that many people had options of other jobs, and uh, they were less likely to uh, reach out on their own. Uh, Obviously, that uh, uh, evaporated pretty quickly uh, as we moved into March and April. And now uh, we're seeing that uh, people who are either still employed or um, have recently become unemployed are now realizing that uh, maybe they are at a time in their life when it makes sense uh, for them to uh, look at a franchised business um, as a way to uh, have a little bit more security uh, going forward. They also have, you know, the time to do it uh, now. So uh, companies that are well run in this space, are, are um, uh, their development departments are very active at this point. I've heard it said that franchises, and you've mentioned it before, should be awarded, not sold. But do you agree on this, especially in this day and age of COVID? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in any time, and especially now, um, franchisors really need to take the time to uh, assure themselves that a, a new franchisee they're bringing in is really going to be a good fit. Um, you know, for their brand, Um, you know, so there needs to be a balance, you know, between the kind of the franchise sales aspect of it all and the franchise approval uh, process. And there really should be a process within a franchise or to balance this out. Uh, There needs to be somebody not only selling, but also uh, perhaps themselves or somebody else asking the tough questions of the prospective franchisees. I mean, this needs to be viewed as a marriage. It's a long-term relationship. Um, many franchisors have a 10-year initial term on a franchise agreement. Uh, so these are very difficult to unwind and unpleasant to unwind if uh, either the franchisee makes a bad choice or the franchisor makes a bad choice in awarding the franchise. How can you tell, though, who's maybe a good fit? Don't all say good entrepreneurs make good or great franchisees? Yeah, you'd think they would. But uh, actually, uh, you know, that's not the case. There's there's couple, at least a couple of different kinds of entrepreneurs. There are the, uh, what I call the uh, flaming entrepreneurs who are serial entrepreneurs who are really in it for themselves, by themselves, um, and uh, really want to do it, you know, their own way. And um, so sometimes when I was in the approval process with with my franchise company, uh, I would run into these people and uh, you really needed to, um, they were ready, willing and able to write the check and sign up today, believe me, because they knew they could do it, they were confident and all of that. But you begin to pick up on the fact that they may become a problem later uh, because they're not a good fit. They're too much of, a, of an entrepreneur for a franchise relationship. Uh, you know, there's, there's questions that uh, prospective franchisees should always ask themselves if they are first-time franchisees and are going to experience the relationship for the first time. Um, 
big question, will you be happy being in business for yourself but not by yourself? Uh, you know, will you be happy and satisfied simply executing somebody else's operating system that you did not design yourself? With some brands, that means you know executing the operating system very precisely. Um, will you be happy not being in total control where the franchisor might make a, a decision that's not a contractual kind of thing, but it's a strategic thing you don't agree with? Are you going to be able to deal with that? Uh, will you be happy signing up you know, for 10 years uh, or more? Uh, and what about being a part of a system with other franchisees? Uh, you will be joining a group of people that uh, you may or may not get along with. But one of the values of being in a franchise system is that you have other people doing the business, the same business that you are, and you can learn from one another. But does that appeal to you, that kind of thing or not? Um, people who are truly independent entrepreneurs who are burning with a flaming desire to, to be on their own will often have a hard time looking in the mirror and answering uh, those questions honestly. Then who does make a great franchisee in general? I mean, what makes you know, a franchisee even better? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it starts with asking those very same questions and coming up perhaps with different answers. Uh, uh, you know, I, for one, and uh, most people that get into franchising on the franchisee side think it's a great advantage to be in business for yourself but not by yourself. And they realize there's an advantage to not having to take the risk to invent a product or a service um, from scratch where there's an even higher risk, you know, of failure. So they see that as a, a benefit. And, uh, you know, they also like the fact that um, they will be doing the same business with uh, tens or dozens or hundreds of other people around the country or around the world who are operating, uh, executing the same operating system. Uh, and uh, a lot of shared best practices are going to be a result of that. So folks that really understand the relationship, understand that it is a long-term relationship, um, uh, make very good franchisees and uh, are often very successful. So what you're saying then that it's the job of a good franchisor to try and then identify prospective franchisees who will be a good fit for franchising first before considering your specific brand. Yeah, and, and again, it's a balance because you obviously uh, want and need to bring new franchisees into your system. So there's a strong motivation to do that. Uh, but, um, you know, that, that, um, that franchise fee or that commission uh, won't look so good two or three years down the road if you've got a, an unhappy franchisee. And if you have a bad fit, uh, most people are surprised about this. You could have a franchisee who owns a unit or multiple units that are very profitable, that have surpassed his financial expectations, and a particular franchisee could still be unhappy <laughs> and mm. causing trouble for you uh, because they're not a good fit. They never really should have done it in the first place. Ass they cannot be happy in your system. Mm. Assuming that a prospective franchisee is a good fit for franchising in general, what else goes into being a good fit for your specific brand? Well, I always recommend and always wanted to really understand why 
the prospective franchisee was interested in uh, being a franchisee in my system. Uh, could they really explain that? Did they have a good reason to do it? Or were they just, did they just find us online or through a broker or whatever? And, and if they didn't buy our franchise, they were going to buy something totally different in some other industry. Uh, that usually didn't impress me. So I wanted a franchisee, a prospective franchisee to come in and say, here's why I'm interested in this system. Uh, I understand your mission, you know, I understand your vision, I buy into it, want to be a part of it, I'm excited about it, and, and can explain in some detail why I, I want to be a franchisee, you know, in your system. So they need to buy into the mission and vision. Um, you know, I, I, I work with uh, Huntington Learning Centers here in the United States today, and, uh, you know, many of their franchisees are very mission driven uh, to uh, really fill in an important gap in education in the United States. And uh, um, many of those uh, franchisees uh, are very successful uh, because they are so uh, mission driven. Uh, when I found Valpac many years ago, I had sold radio advertising in a local market for several years. And I knew that um, uh, small businesses needed advertising, but they were really interested in in attribution. We didn't use that term back in the day, but measuring results <laughs> was was another way to put it. Uh, Valpac uh, filled in that gap for me because because it was coupons. Uh, I could measure the results uh, from my advertisers. Uh, when I found Fast Signs, when I became a multi-unit uh, franchisee of Fast Signs. Um, after having dealt with small business people for several years, I knew what a hard time they were having back in those days getting signs made or banners uh, printed. Usually in somebody's garage, it would take uh, you know three weeks and cost too much. Uh, and Fast Signs uh, was creating a way for small businesses to get uh, high quality signs and you know lettering overnight. And so I could understand the need. I bought into the vision, and as a result, bought into the the franchise opportunity. Interestingly enough, that franchise Zor, uh, the founder of that company, was a fellow Valpac franchisee oh. who. Uh, uh, we had met and mm. were friends with, and when he started Fast Signs, um, uh, you know, we already knew each other, and he already understood why there was a need. And of course, uh, the rest is history with both of those companies, uh, Fast Signs now, with hundreds of locations, you know, around the world. Mm. What about culture? Where does that fit in? <laughs> well, you know, that's that's an interesting one, and it can be, you know, a little bit squishy. But I usually start with. Um, two major differences in franchise or culture uh, really have to do with at what stage the, the franchise you know is in. How old is it? How long has it been around? Is it a startup? Is it emerging? You know, there needs to be a first and second franchisee of every system. Uh, but is it an emerging? Do they have you know 30, 40, 50 units still pretty new? Uh, is it the kind of system where a franchisee can pick up the phone and talk to the founder? He's got their cell phone number, call them at home, you know that kind of thing. A very informal um, uh, culture where franchisors and franchisees are evolving the system very quickly because it's an emerging uh, stage. Very different culture in a 20, 30, 40, 50-year-old franchise brand 
uh, that has already grown grown to scale that may have a lot of uh, uh, you know bureaucracy involved, a lot of layers, and that uh, requires uh, a, a different kind of franchisee who will be happy and uh, want to be a part of a system uh, like that. So that that goes into part of the the fit. Um, another one uh, is uh, really what is. How does the organization act? How do the people act? Um, I've, I've had uh, occasion to attend uh, several different uh, conferences or franchise franchisor conventions in the last few years for companies that I'm working with. And I noticed uh, there are completely different ways in which conventions and conferences are conducted. Uh, some of them are like any other button-down corporate meeting, all very formal with presentations, uh, basically work. Um, you know, then you have others uh, that uh, may feel more like the United Nations uh, and with a number of different cultures represented within the franchisee group. Certainly true uh, with uh, global uh, franchisors, but um, to a certain extent with others here in the States as well. And then there's the third kind, which is more like Animal House. And uh, if you remember Animal House, it was, a, you know, a fraternity. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, that was kind of the way we began. And we actually called our annual conference Coupon You. And it was actually <laughs> modeled after Animal House. But, uh, you know, there would be people that would come into a culture like that and be completely shocked and say, um, how could business be going on here? How could this company be successful uh, when all it seems to do? They just want to have fun. So uh, some people love that. So, uh, again, I think uh, it really comes down to um, finding the right fit in, for, with a company that uh, you believe in the mission, vision. You're comfortable joining at whatever stage of evolution the brand is in. And then are you going to like the people at the home office? And are you going to like your fellow franchisees? Do you share kind of a culture? Will you have fun? Will you cooperate? Will there be trust and cooperation? And uh, uh, all of that um, goes into uh, this two-way, very important decision that needs to be made before the dotted line is signed on and the check is written and that's the franchisor to the greatest extent possible and the franchisee to the greatest extent possible making sure that there is a good fit and they're going to make a good decision that's going to make both parties happy uh, for many years into the future. Still an exciting industry and uh, it will get yes. stronger and uh, as you mentioned before people are very, very resilient and strong. Yes. Uh, if yep. they want to find out more, though, and uh, let me think now, who would they call? Oh, not Ghostbusters, <laughs> but they would call Joe Bordeaux. <laughs> How would they contact you, Joe? Yeah, PremierFranchiseAdvisors.com. Fan uh, fantastic. way to reach us anytime. Now, I can actually hear the, um, I, well, not here, I can imagine the uh, that burger you threw on the barbecue. It's sort of resembling the coals that are cooking it at the moment. So maybe maybe take two on the barbecue with a good Chardonnay. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Sun, the sun is setting here on the uh, west coast of Florida. So we'll lose our lights shortly. It's probably time to sign off. It is indeed, Joe Bordeaux. Thank you very much. Great. 
Well, it's that time of the week which I sort of tremble in my shoes just a little bit. Uh, Kirk Clyde is no longer in Vegas, well, just for this week. He's uh, walking the streets of where, Kirk? I'm, I'm walking the streets of Philadelphia, actually West Philadelphia, just a little bit west of the University City area. And if I knew how to, off the top of my head, switch the camera, we could show you some more. But you kind of can still get the general idea. These are some houses that are probably a little more than 100 years old, and they're huge back when people had six-bedroom houses. So it is a gentrifying area. It was kind of a working-class area of Philadelphia for a long time, but now we're seeing some very interesting juxtapositions of housing where you'll have a very old house uh, next to one that's modern right next to it. It's like, wow, how does these two things go together? But it's a very interesting, fascinating, dynamic city. And yes, very, very democratic, that's for sure. Because you, you, you were once a sort of a, um, almost a, a minor celeb there. You were the weatherman yeah. of Philly. Yeah, <laughs> for three years I was on TV here. I was one of the B-list celebrities, maybe C-list. Well, they couldn't get the, somebody from the A-list or the B-list here in Philadelphia. They'd call me. Let me see if I can just flip the camera here for you. If I can figure this out here to do this. Choo, 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 where's that? Where's the camera flip? This is just uh, this is the on the fly. Now, tell me about the flight. Speaking on the fly, how was the, the flight? It was pretty interesting. Here, I just want to show you something here in town. There are these signs, thousands of them, thousands that say vote make a plan vote make a plan and in the city all there are all there are biden harris signs everywhere there are thousands of them up but it's interesting because when you go into the suburbs there you start to see the trump signs here it's a little bent right there but you see another one there and then another one across the street there are these i cannot even imagine how many of these vote make a plan signs that the city has put up. I think it's the city that's put up. And on every other phone pole is a, a Biden-Harris sign. And here comes a Philadelphia trash truck. And they do something very interesting here in Philadelphia. They certainly uh, don't have to worry about that where you are in Brisbane. But in the winter, when it snows, to supplement the snow plows, they actually put a snow plow blade on the front of the trash trucks. And they go down the streets here in Philadelphia. Actually, just a beautiful day-to-day temperature in the low 20s. Leaves ought to be starting to change. And you were asking a little bit about the uh, the flight. Actually, if you could just imagine there wasn't a pandemic, it was actually much more pleasant to fly. And the reason for that is there just weren't the crowds. The plane about half full. I had a connection in Dallas. So um, it was. I had no one in my row from Las Vegas to Dallas, and then no one in my row again from um, Dallas here to Philadelphia. So it's kind of, you almost feel like you're giving uh, the steerage provisions from the third class cabin. There you are. Here's another phone pole. Same thing from across the street. There are more of them, the steerage cabins, because you come on the plane, they give you a baggie. And in that baggie, you've got a uh, handy wipe and they still have trolleys there. You may be able to see it in the distance here, which is kind of cool here in West Philly where it's a trolley. It's not a bus. So that's kind of neat. But they give you a baggie. And, uh, and in the baggie, as I mentioned, the wipe, a bottle of water, and a cracker. So that is, your, that, that is what you get. But uh, 
all in all, it was actually a very pleasant experience. So I, uh, the plane was early, so we'll see how it is going back. But I tell you, it is t- much, much tougher to, um, you know, get flights than it was because there's simply not as many of them. Mm. There used to be American Airlines, which has their hub here in Philadelphia, one of their hubs. They used to have, you know, three or four nonstops a day to Vegas. Now they have one. Wow. So coming up here on Baltimore Avenue, which is one of the main drags here. And look at this. Another, they're everywhere. Everywhere. It's kind of remarkable. And here you get an idea of what we've got going on. You got the Philadelphia paramedics out here. So well, they're, really they're, interesting. But they're there for you because they know that you're talking about the, the, the elections and they know they've just they saw last week's episode and they thought, Oh my god, he needs paramedics. Well, you know, I might after the vice presidential debate, which would by the time you watch this, the vice presidential debate will be over, but it's gonna be getting started here in a couple of hours so if you can't hear me it's obviously because of some street musicians here and most people right now i'm not because i'm talking to you but most people even on the streets they wear a mask Mm. which is pretty interesting tell you what i'll run across the street here on baltimore avenue notice on the road trolley tracks there's not that many cities well now they're starting to be more and more but philadelphia is one of the few cities that never gave up their trolleys so there you go, Philadelphia Fire Department in action there for you. And this is a Baltimore Avenue, but it was very pleasant to get here. Philadelphia is a great city with the exception of maybe uh, December, January, February, March. So eight months <laughs> of the year, it's a uh, pretty nice place to go. And I have no idea what's going on with the extremely loud local entertainment across mm. the street. No, we, we organised that for you, you see. Oh, did you? We, we have, we, our, our, our reach is great. We can go to all parts of the studio. <laughs> hey, tell me, the um, you, you, um, after we spoke last week, we know what happened with uh, uh, Donald. He, um, Amazing. He, yeah, now he's out again. Uh, who do you think is the more stronger at the moment and who is the weaker? I mean, is it Trump or Biden? You know what's fascinating that we've got going on here? is we've got, there you are, another one of those signs, is, um, interesting, little sidebar going by here. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of only two states in the country where the state controls the alcohol sales. So the state, that's a state liquor store there. Wow. So they get all the money from the booze here in uh, this state. But what's fascinating is today a Rasmussen poll came out and Rasmussen is uh, usually very conservative. It's the one that Trump often tweets about, uh, you know, saying, oh, 50 percent approval rating from Rasmussen. It's so good. It's so wonderful. Today, it showed him 12 points behind Joe Biden. So clearly the debate performance and uh, the hospitalization and some of his just crazy actions where he's saying, oh, he's breaking off discussions with the Democrats on the stimulus, and then he's starting it back, and then he's got it for the for the uh, airlines, and then he wants one stimulus check. He's just all over the place. And multiple reports today here that he's, uh, you know, one day back in the White House and is actually in the Oval Office. I mm. mean, my gosh, they have basically carved that place out because so many people in the White House have gotten COVID. Mm. And you have the situation with the justice, the 
the uh, judge that has been appointed a justice, this is interesting, used to be a bank, and now it's a food co-op. So that's an interesting place. But you've got a situation there where, I mean, how does she feel? I guess the desire and the power of wanting to be on the Supreme Court overrules the, the fact that during the time that she was appointed, that has become a super spreader event. And just what's so bizarre that we've got going on here is that the White House is not doing much to cooperate with D.C. to trace all these cases down. Here's kind of cool. This is a look at one of the SEPTA streetcars that we got going on. Yeah, that's a tram. That's Philly, a tram. It's a, yeah, it's a streetcar. You better know how to parallel park. That's all <laughs> I can say. But you do. <laughs> that's also someone from our camp. They've heard you talk about uh, Donald in such a bad way. <laughs> but uh yeah it's it's amazing and you know it's interesting because you look at voting mm. voting here in pennsylvania is actually much more difficult than it is in Pen- in uh, nevada nevada makes it considerably easier to vote for instance nevada sends a ballot to every registered voter in the state here you have to request one mm-hmm. they don't have as many early voting sites and locations in fact when i lived here you could only actually vote on election day. So it's just fascinating to see the contrast and the difference in states as far as their election laws go. What about the movements of both candidates? Uh, we saw what happened to uh, Trump. Uh, and I mean, Joe's movements, well, he's sort of retarded in his movements anyway because of his, um, his, uh, his age and uh, other ailments. But you know, for a 95-year-old, he certainly moves around. But do you think they should be, you think both Trump and Joe Biden should be restricted in where they can go? Well, I, you know, we have a situation here where you have the administration that's currently in power advocates that uh, people could do basically whatever they want. And here's a good example. Those folks there, they're wearing their mask. And just a little look at the old school architecture here in town. That dates back to the latter part of the 19th century. Most of these buildings, these stone buildings, like the stone church that you see here, this would be architecture. Get across the street here. This would be architecture that would probably be, I would say, ran the red line. That would be probably about 1880, 1882. So make it out of stone. It stays. For a, uh, for a long period of time. But, of course, you've got Joe Biden saying right now that if Trump still tests positive, that they are here. You go, I was off by a little bit, 1905. 1905 for that church. Were you so, there for the opening? <laughs> yes, I was there. You've seen the pictures. <laughs> but right now you have Biden saying that, hey, we should not have a debate if Trump still tests positive mm. for uh, covid but what they could do, and what there's a lot of speculation on, is um, that's pretty cool. A light down there on the ground. That's neat. Um, anyway, what they're speculating now is they could have them in two different locations. I mean, they did that for the last Kennedy Nixon debate back in 1960. So if they could do it 60 years ago with the uh, candidates in different cities and even the moderator in a different city, they, they should be able to pull it off this time. But it's going to be fascinating to see if there is another Trump-Biden debate. And, of course, by the time you watch this, you will know what happened in the vice presidential debate, which is happening, of course, in Salt Lake City. And big discussions there because the Democrat, uh, Kamala Harris, they wanted the plastic partition, the plexiglass partition, 
while the Republicans, Mike Pence, oh, no, no, didn't want it. And they've uh, spread out even further. So uh, this will be an interesting event. What's the feeling in, uh, in Philly at the moment towards, I mean, you, you mentioned it's a democratic city, although out in the burbs, they've got the, uh, the, the leaning towards maybe the, the Donald. Do you think that one, um, is that an indication of, of um, what's happening throughout the US, that the, the, generally the major cities, you know, the, they're, they're in favour of, of generally the, uh, the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And then as you get out of the suburbs or out into the country or into the, uh, into the farmland, uh, do you think they sort of swing towards the Republicans? Well, I think we're seeing more and more in the hinterland. So what is affectionately known here in Pennsylvania as Pennsylvania that is starting to go for uh, Biden. I just wanted to mention before you elaborate further on that, this is kind of interesting. Of course, we've talked before about Breonna Taylor. It's a little street memorial to Breonna Taylor. And if you do come to Philadelphia, not so much here on Baltimore Avenue, but they have some of the most amazing murals. This is really a city of murals that they have. And it is uh, really remarkable. No, Pennsylvania, the central portion of the state, will still probably vote for Trump. Of course, this was one of the three key states that put Trump in the White House. There was just a couple of thousand votes Mm. that uh, did it for him. The three states being Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So uh, what we've got going on here is just a swing of literally fewer people than you would fit in the MCG. The Melbourne Cricket Grounds can decide the election as it did back in 2016. It certainly can here in Pennsylvania. And that's why there is such an effort by the uh, Democrats, by the Biden campaign to get out the vote here in Philadelphia, because if they have a strong voter turnout here in Philadelphia and to a lesser extent across the state in western Pennsylvania in um, Pittsburgh, uh, that will overwhelm. The rural vote. So they're hoping for at least maybe a 40 percent Democrat vote in rural Pennsylvania. And that will uh, overwhelm the uh, that will the strong urban vote Mm. will overwhelm the uh, vote from uh, the rural part of the state. You can see a little bit in the distance there. If you look some of the skyscrapers of Center City. Now, if you ever come to Philadelphia, do not call it downtown. Philadelphia does not have a downtown. It's got center city. Kirk Clyde walking the streets of Philadelphia. Uh, what I should have had was some Rocky Balboa music, but I can't find any Rocky music for you, so we'll just have to imagine it. Kirk, thank you very much. See you, see you in Vegas next week. I'll be there. Hopefully, if you know the plane, the plane makes it. I'll be there, and I'll look forward to it always. But if you get a chance, what's if the world ever returns to a semi-normal condition, mm. uh, come see Philadelphia. It really is a great American city, but uh, probably not a good idea to visit next year or two because it's going to take that long for us to uh, get our act together here in the U.S. Joe Biden wants the U.S. to achieve a 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions no later than 2050. The Biden plan is a $2 trillion proposal that is more narrow and less aggressive than the far-reaching Green New Deal. Now, the Green New Deal, the main goal of the plan is to bring U.S. greenhouse gas emissions down to net zero by 2030. The Green New Deal 
also calls for the creation of millions of jobs to provide a job guarantee to all Americans, along with access to nature, clean air and water, healthy food, a sustainable environment and community resiliency. While many of the concepts in the new Green Deal are also addressed in Biden's climate plan, Generally speaking, the Biden plan is more narrowly focused, but it will still cost trillions and trillions of dollars. Blake Christian is a tax partner at Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite. Blake, thanks for joining us. And can an economy recovering from COVID-19 take this from Biden? Nice to see you, Mike. Uh, well, uh, the answer is is no. The economy cannot bear the cost of uh, of what he has uh, in his plan. Uh, thank God it's a little bit uh, milder than the uh, the new Green Deal. They say they will pay for this by removing Donald Trump's tax cuts. Now, what impact would this have on production and jobs? And will it be a big hit to confidence? Well, first of all, I, I was on a call uh, with, with a number of economists uh, earlier today. And uh, the um, what, what I think is a bit of a lowball prediction is that uh, with rolling back uh, Donald Trump's 2017 uh, tax cuts, that the uh, GDP will drop by by 1%. I, I think it'll be much larger than that. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, it just it just really makes no sense. And, and the frustrating part is really Biden's plan really doesn't uh, call for using uh, much of these funds to reduce the deficit. Uh, or, or the um, you know the borrowing of of the government, and so you know all we're doing is digging ourselves in a bigger hole, and uh, it's just going to be an, an added tax effectively on businesses and uh, and people. You know, mm. cars are going to cost more. Uh, you know, electricity is going to cost more. Um, you know, etc. Which sectors have benefited most from uh, Donald Trump's tax cuts? You know. Uh, Companies with uh, international operations, uh, you know, he's encouraging people to, you know, onshore profits that they've left offshore. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that's, that's helped uh, put a lot of money back into the U.S. economy and uh, accounts for some of the uh, low interest rates that we're continuing to benefit from. Um, so, so, again, manufacturing, um, uh, you know, service sector, uh, small businesses in particular, they, they have what's called the uh, qualified uh, business uh, interest deduction, uh, which, which allows, uh, you know, small businesses to reduce their taxable income by 20 percent. Um, Joe Biden would get, get rid of that. Um, you know, just just so many things and just jacking the, the tax rates back up to uh, not you know, an uncompetitive level internationally. I see some of the uh, sectors that might do well from uh, Joe Biden's handouts, such as the electric cars, charging stations, wind and solar. Uh, can you name others? Well, you know, l- let me let me just frame this. That You know, I, I'm not anti-environmentalism. I, I was uh, I was a founding uh, member of Surfrider Foundation. I like clean water. I like clean air. Um, but but at the same time, as a businessman, you you have you have to look at this in moderation. And uh, you know, first of all, when you're when you're looking at 2050 to be you know uh, 
net zero, you know, nationally, we, we don't even know what technologies will be out there by then. And so I think some of this is just going to be, um, you know, some of the environmental issues will be cleared up with just uh, just new inventions that are going to be coming down, um, you know, in the in the next decade or two. Uh, but if we if we reduce entrepreneurs uh, because you're taxing the heck out of them and they don't even want to take the risk of becoming an entrepreneur, uh, you're going to lose lose out on the ability to do that. The Biden plan promises 100% clean energy and net zero emissions by 2050. Currently, renewable energy makes up about, I think it's about 11%. So how will it be possible to get to the 100% mark for clean energy without massive subsidies. I mean, they, they've got to subsidize it, don't they? Because 11% at the moment, it's just not worth talking about. Right, and and you're, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's the subsidy problem. And, and, you know, anybody in business realizes if something's being subsidized, that means it cannot stand on its own. And so, you know, I mean, why, why are we giving tax credits on electric cars that that the buyers can can clearly pay for the higher cost of that, and um, you know most of the people that I know that uh, that do- drive Teslas, uh, you know, kind of laugh about how yeah, you know, I'm getting a you know three thousand seven thousand dollar tax credit, and um, you know I would have bought the car anyway without it, but um, uh, that that's you know that's one of the problems, and then you know the the every taxpayer is subsidizing. That you know, Tesla or Chevy electric vehicle. Not picking on Tesla, but um, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. And and you know, I'm I'm all for alternative energy, but it needs to stand on its own. You know, mm. and we, and we may need to wait uh, for technologies to become more efficient uh, before we adopt them. Biden will ensure the agricultural sector. Poor farmers will be the first in the world to achieve net zero emissions. Apparently, those that the cows are just creating havoc with a uh, passing wind, but the <laughs> agricultural sector would have to be concerned that they're being targeted first. I mean, how would you like to be a farmer in this day and age? You wouldn't, would you? I mean, you got all of Mother Nature against you. If, uh, if God wakes up grumpy one day, you got a really bad year ahead of you, and then you have. Uh, possibly the new president coming in saying, well, you got windy cows, <laughs> you're, you're hurting our planet, we're going to do something about that. So it's a little scary. Yeah, and if you read his plan, uh, which I have, he he's careful to say that he will partner or his administration will partner with uh, family farms. But he's, you know, so, so I think he's clearly going to go after the big corporate farmers and um you know take take them to task on all of their practices he he may be kinder and gentler to uh the family farm but he's you know and there's there's a lot of agricultural activities going out there that are you know big uh conglomerates and um you know they they, i think they're going to pay the price uh, for the small guy it's um i mean it's all nice having these and we all always you think about what we would do if we were God or the president, how we would change that. And you think, well, reality says you can only do so much. Um, yet we have, we're on the, on the edge of a, a, of a new era. And um, 
We have Joe Biden um, on his website sort of saying, I support the Green New Deal. And then, yeah, there's no, we don't support that. But we have all these unknowns. And looking at history, uh, we would probably say that the Democrats or Joe Biden is heading down a path that will probably um, cost many thousands of jobs. And to think that renewables will create new jobs or enough to replace the ones that are lost, that's fanciful thinking, isn't it? Right. And, and, you know, I think there's there's some balance that could be done if they want to give out the incentives on the front end while the while the technology is being proven and then and then claw some of that back and say, okay, you know, uh, again, I'll I'll pick on Tesla for the moment and say, hey, look, we gave uh, on an average five thousand dollars of credit per car that you sold. So that made your sales increase. And now that you've gone through the startup phase and are making a lot of money, we are going to, um, you know, now charge, you know, charge you to, to recoup some of those credits that we gave the individual taxpayer. You know, I, I'm all for that type of thing where you, you, you know, you just even things out later on mm-hmm. and it, you can set up some self-funding structures like that in the in the tax policy but uh, to just give it away and then penalize whole new groups down the road including consumers uh, just makes no sense to me from uh, an investment point of view renewables are still good uh, yes I mean I'm I'm working on you know some very large uh, solar projects uh, you know I've, I've worked on you know just a, a wide variety of alternative fuels uh, Etc. But you know, and then and then some technologies they, they hate, you know, like fracking, which you know has made us uh, energy independent here in the U.S. And um, you know, the Biden administration, you know, just doesn't like that. Cer- certainly, the uh, the Green New Deal uh, wants no part of that. And you know, Biden is saying, you know, he, he says a whole lot of different things on on fracking, but, you know, he, he certainly doesn't seem like uh, a fan of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, anybody will tell you that that has, has created, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue for the U.S., uh, a lot of tax collections related to that, and it's made us independent. Trump's now out of, um, out of hospital, and, um, but do you think that will have any effect on the election, being uh, some of the, uh, the pundits were saying that, by being in hospital, it may win him part of the sympathy vote. And others were saying that it's just all a bit, a bit of a hoax. It's fake news. What do you think? You know, I, I, um, when I first heard, my, my first reaction was, uh, my, my wife was very upset about it. I, I looked at it as a positive because it's, it's kind of played out like I thought it would, that if he goes in... Um, and, and is back on his feet fairly quickly. And uh, I'm still cautious. I'm afraid, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know that he's out of the woods yet. But, you know, with him getting home just a couple of days after, you know, him going into the hospital and looking very strong, mm. uh, if this continues, I think it makes him uh, look a, bit, a, a little bit invincible and, uh, and probably plays into, a, you know, a lot more of his narrative that, hey, this, you know, this is this is a real disease, but it's not going to kill us all. And mm-hmm. I'm a 74 year old guy, and it didn't kill me. And uh, so let's get on with things. 
So I think, I th- and, he, and then he can talk also from, you know, he's had it. He knows how people feel. And so he can speak with a lot more authority. And, uh, you know, and then you question, hey, Biden hasn't had it. You know, what, what if he doesn't survive if he gets it? At least we know, you know, hopefully Trump will continue to survive. Just uh, another question before we uh, wind this up. Um, what's happened to America? I mean, if you once had a president in hospital that possibly was in a very serious way, it would bring America together again because they would drop all the, the this political crap that's going on. But this time we saw the vitriol that came out and the hate and the... And what's happened to America? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty ugly out there. And, um, you know, in, in the past, you're right. It would have, you know, people would have been on good behavior for mm. a week. And then, you know, and then once he recovered, then he would be fair game to be on, you know, late night talk show jokes and things like mm. that. And now in real time, uh, with social media and everything, it just gets ugly right out of the block. So mm. um, I, you know, I just have low expectations of human nature uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty mean. And, and I, I always think of, you know, what would I have done, you know, with, with Biden, he had got it, you know, I, I would have prayed for him also. Mm. I don't, I don't want anybody dying over this. Uh, I don't want, you know, to feel guilty about wishing somebody, uh, to go to an early grave, mm. you know, but, um, it's, 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 there's a lot of mean spirited people out there right now, unfortunately. Yeah. I hear that, you know, Joe Biden's a, a a really nice guy, and I hear that Donald Trump is a really, you know, away from the, the cameras and the limelight. He's a pretty good bloke too, and yet we have this vitriol or this this um, theatre that's going on about how terribly either one of those are. It's just, it's not America. I mean, America was it was always that, you know, the Statue of Liberty, that shining light, and it's sort of at the moment. Um, it's looking a bit dim, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you know, and all, all of the fingers point to to Trump because he does, you know, he does have a um, you know kind of a, a, a tough guy, mm. uh, you know, uh, image, and, and he does. But but if you take a hard look at it, including the debate, most of it starts off as defensive posturing. He, he's usually not the first guy throwing the stone. Mm. And again, if you look at the first debate, the first three talkovers and rudeness was was Biden. But uh, even to this day, uh, Trump is accused of being the, the guy that started the whole, uh, you know, ruckus. Very clever, though, that they brought in the uh, the extra man on Biden's side with uh, Chris Wallace. He did a great job for the Democrats. And uh, <laughs> Uh, I'd like to. I would like to see what his paycheck was like too. By the way, um, look, Blake, great chatting again. Uh, if somebody wants to find out more uh, about Park City and the beautiful snowing, skiing, sorry, skiing in the in the near future, or want to talk to you about taxation uh, or opportunity zones, or just get on the phone to have a good old natter, how would they do that? Yeah, the easiest way to find me uh, actually, you can just Google me, Blake Christian CPA, or www.hcbt.com. Blake, thank you very much. Always good to talk to you. Brian.
Prime Minister Scott Morrison said the Australian government's gas plan will help re-establish a strong economy as part of the government's jobmaker plan, making energy affordable for families and businesses and supporting jobs as part of Australia's recovery from the COVID-19 recession. Senator Malcolm Roberts joins us from Pauline Hanson's One Nation. Uh, Malcolm, nice to see you again after a long weekend here in Queensland, but I presume you're working very hard. Yes, uh, we've been doing a fair bit of travelling and listening, Mike, but it's good to be back with you. Uh, I'm in Canberra today. We flew down last night. Oh, aren't you lucky? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fabulously lucky. Look, the Prime Minister recently announced a gas plan to support jobs growth. Do you think this is proposed to replace government support for coal-fired power stations? What we've got going on in this country, Mike, is a bit like the joke about the two hikers in the Rocky Mountains. Um, They come across a grizzly, and one, one of the hikers turns and runs flat out away from the grizzly. The other hiker just promptly sits down, takes off his backpack and starts putting on a pair of running shoes. And the first hiker, who's 50 metres away by now, says, what are you doing? You've got to outrun the grizzly. And he said, no, mate, I've only got to outrun you. And so that's what's doing. They're both pretending to be, uh, and to, to be in favour of um, uh, climate change or supporting the climate change. Neither have got any evidence. And what Scott Morrison is doing is very, very clever. He pretends to have policies that will deal with climate change, but he also has to keep his other side of his party on board, which is supporting coal. And so what he's trying to do is to come up with something in the middle. He's trying to put on his running shoes to outrun Labor uh, on both sides, to not do as badly as Labor, but not do as well as Labor, not do as well as Labor in terms of supposed carbon dioxide reductions, but not do as badly as Labor in terms of carbon dioxide reductions. Mm. And so what he's done is he's charted a middle course, which is uh, gas. And this is the same, same uh, ideologically driven nonsense that's driving policy in this country and driving us broke. It won't make much difference at all because we will still have absurd renewables at 20 to ultimately 30% under the LNP. And wherever renewables come in, or I call them unreliables, Mike, they drive up the price. So all he's doing is trying to get a bit of a reliability in a bit of price reduction but ultimately, it's, for, it's the unreliables, the renewables that will drive this price. We're in a hiding to hell here. One of the many complicated elements of the plan involves negotiating with state governments, and I'm trying not to laugh here, to access greater supply. Now, the question is, how difficult will this be? I, I would imagine it's just going to be a walk in the park. I mean, you've got supportive premiers such as Palaszczuk, uh, Dan Andrews, uh, McGowan. I mean, they're all, they're all easy people to deal with. There's something, it's fundamentally very difficult. And, and I think the government should stay out of uh, state affairs because we have got what we, uh, the underpinning tenet of our constitution is competitive federalism. Where each state does its own thing and ma- majority of services should be provided under the constitution by the state governments. And that sets up a, a competition between the, between the states. So I go back to Joe Bjorki-Peterson who brought in, who, who removed rather uh, death duties in Queensland and death taxes. And what that did was it, it attracted a lot of people to Queensland to, to retire because they knew that if they died in Queensland, they would leave more money to their kids. That then forced the other governments, state governments, to abolish death duties as well. And so we had the abolition of death duties all over the country, which improved our efficiency. So that's, that's what should be happening. But what is happening is we've now got competitive welfareism. 
South Australia won't develop its its uh, energy resources and went into uh, all, uh, unreliables, wind and solar. The economy fell over. The government started helping it. Uh, but meanwhile, we've left South Australia. Victoria is, is uh, abandoning uh, brown coal-fired power stations and their prices are going up. And they're now getting electricity from uh, New South Wales and ultimately from Queensland. So what we've got is these states abandoning their cheap forms of electricity and going into higher forms of electricity. And they, uh, what, what the government is trying to do is to try and help them, the federal government is trying to help the states reduce their prices. Well, the federal government should just stay the hell out of it and let the states become basket cases. And those that become basket cases will, su- will suffer a correction of people and businesses leaving. And eventually the voters will wake up and turf that government out. That's the only way it's going to happen, because what's happening right now is we're just going to have taxpayers at the federal level subsidising um, the, the other states. And, and if you look at JobKeeper, I'm, I'm going on a bit here, Mike, but it's really important. If you look at JobKeeper, Victoria made a mess of its quarantining. And what did, this, what did the federal government do? Helped it out with billions of dollars. Hmm. So now we get rewarded. Uh, the, the states that destroy their energy sector have, uh, like South Australia, and, and also not running very well, South Australia and Tasmania, they now get money from the GST from places like Western Australia. Western Australia gets 37 cents in a dollar for each dollar raised in, in GST. South Australia gets $1.20, I think, and, and, and Tasmania gets $1.20, something like that. So they're recipients, and they're paid to drive their states into the ground and run them poorly. Mm. That's what we've got to get away from, competitive welfareism. The state, the federal government should stay out of it. Now, there's talk of a, uh, a Green New Deal, um, which is... Very alarming, especially with the US at the moment. Tell us about the Green New Deal proposed by our good friends, the Greens, the sensible, the sensible ones, climate activists, big corporate rent seekers in a number of countries, including Australia. Now, they're all quite similar, aren't they? Yes, they are. Um, they're basically a social, um, what do you call, control. They run off things like uh, uh, racism. They run off things like poverty which are just fabricated. I mean, there is poverty and there is some racism around, but it's not endemic. And, and Donald Trump has exposed that. We're not racist in Australia. There are, we do have some racists, just like the Koreans have racists, the Japanese mm. have racists, the Chinese. But we're not a racist nation. Mm. And what they're trying to do is get control of the social agenda, fabricating problems, and that's what the Greens are very good at doing and the socialists are very good at doing, to get control of the agenda and then get control of the population. This is just socialism. Uh, under a different mask, under a nice, pretty green mask. It's nonsense. It's just socialism, which will lead to more poverty, more control, and ultimately to uh, poverty for everyone. The cost of the plans are truly incredible. Uh, where do you think the money would come from? Just as if you were um, asked this question just in the street, somebody says, well, where are they getting the money? I mean, the US, for example, Joe Biden's talking about uh, in US dollars, um, over a four-year period, is talking about two trillion US. So that, that's about three trillion Australian, um, and he wants he wants zero emissions uh, by 2050, and from the uh, power grid uh, 2035. And uh, here, the uh, Green New Deal says they want it uh, within 10 years in uh, 2030. So, where do they get the money, first of all, to make this this program that won't work uh, happen? They get it from productive people. That's where they take it, from people who are productive, farmers, miners, Mm. manufacturers, what's left of the manufacturers, uh, tertiary uh, sector workers, that they take it off 
people, um, everyday Australians will pay for this. They'll pay for it in higher costs. They'll also pay for it in higher taxes. And they'll pay for it in decreased efficiency. That's the real problem here. Um, and, and what we're seeing is a transfer of wealth. But if you look more closely at the details, Mike, you'll see what's been going on. And that is that we will be paying as taxpayers and as consumers for infrastructure which will be handed over to private to private owners. We are we will we will bankroll, we will pay for the assets and the assets will be handed over. We will subsidize the development of, of uh, uh, unreliables, alternative uh, energies, and those will be then handed over to the new owners. Because that's what's going on with the subsidization. We are just buying the asset for other people. And quite often those large companies that, that own these assets are foreign. We are subsidizing the Chinese to come in here. Um, and, and they're smart business people, and we're the fools. We're subsidizing the Chinese with, uh, with um, uh, subsidies for wind, wind turbines and solar panels in large solar and, and wind complexes. And then that drives up the price of our electricity. We export those jobs then because we, our manufacturers fall over with high electricity prices. We export those jobs to China. Mm. I mean, the Chinese are winning hand over fist here. The Green New Deal, I mean, this is uh, very alarming. It's uh, something we can just, just talk about. But it, the, the time frame is, um, you know, 10 years time. Uh, if Biden gets his way, he's going to relax it to basically uh, 15 years time. He, his first impact is going to be on the on the farming industry. Uh, apparently, the cows they're quite destructive when it gets windy. Uh, but why? Why? And you see this around the world. There seems to be a um, a real um, uh, whack around the head for the, the actual farming industry when it comes to climate change. And I, I just don't understand it because if you impose restrictions and extra cost to the farming industry, uh, then everything else goes up. You're absolutely correct. And very few people know what you've just said, Mike. And I'm really pleased to hear that. We've been bashing on about this for quite a while, and I'm so grateful that, that you are raising it. Uh, what, what this exposes and reveals is what's really going on. This is not about controlling um, cows. This is about controlling farmers. This is about controlling their land, and in fact about stealing their land. It's already happening in this country. We've got so many pieces of legislation that are predicated on the nonsense, the absurd myth that farmers are destructive to the environment. Farmers are being treated now as criminals, literally. And I mean that. I can give you an example. Farmers are being treated as criminals. And, and so what they're doing is they're try, excuse me, trying to control the use of land, which is stealing farmers' rights to their use of their own property that they have bought, bought and paid for. And it's about control of land. The same thing is happening under the guise of climate to control people who own uh, land and, uh, and homes on coastal property. And they're being used now to control people in some areas of Sydney, some councils in Sydney. Uh, they have regulations now as to how, many, how much uh, pavement you must have, paving you must have, uh, sorry, how much grass and bush you must have compared to paving in your backyard in, in Mossman City Council, for example. But this is done to control land because when they control land, they control you. And so this is an old communist trick, and it is, it is about control of land. It is about control of the main uh, sources and main processes for, for generating wealth, the, the energy. It's also about control of water. 
the resources, the means and the resources and means of production. That's what they're doing. That's just communism in another form. And what we're seeing is uh, coming in as socialism. But socialism always invariably leads to collapse or tyranny mm. or it leads to communism, which is also a form of tyranny. So that, that's where they're going. These people are Fabians that are pushing it on a very gradual basis. And now we're starting to see it accelerate. But make no mistake, this is about getting control of people's lives and control of people's assets. Interesting also, there's no distinction really between uh, the left and the right, whether ALP or um, uh, on the conservatives in, in, say, Australia, in the US, Republicans, Democrats. There's this uh, the melding of terrible ideas. Yes, there is, because what's happened with the, with the United Nations that's been pushing this, and, and by the way, if you... Uh, for, for those people who don't uh, don't see what I see, um, the United Nations is pushing this. The Greens adopt it. They're the foot soldiers, the useful idiots for the United Nations. But in America, there has been pushback. The state of Alabama has banned uh, through its lower house, its upper house, and its governor, banned the spending of money, taxpayer money, on Agenda 21 implementation. That's the United Nations Agenda 21. That's what's driving this. Other states are working on it as well, I think, and some counties in America have been working on Agenda 21. The Liberal National Party membership in Queensland have a policy that says no money to be spent on Agenda 21. Of course, the federal government, even though it's Liberal, National, doesn't have to take any notice of what the grassroots says, and they don't. But there are three policies on the LNP books in Queensland banning Agenda 21. Um, So that's what's really going on, and so we have to be very mindful of that and and what happens is that those policies are driven from the united nations the greens adopt it and then the left wing of the democrats the left wing of the labor party then worry about losing votes to the greens so they adopt the policies and then the liberal party is worried about losing some of its votes to the labor party so they adopt the policies and in the end we have that same old story with the grizzly bear and we have both parties running away from the grizzly bear that's um, and, and one of them's got running shoes on and the other one is trying to fit. Sorry, one of them hasn't got running shoes and the other one's trying to put them on. It's all fabrication. It's all pretense. It's nonsense. It's just a sham. And we've got too many policies in this country that are driven by both Labor and Liberal that are based on no uh, real data whatsoever. They just fabricated their concoctions. Greens create a problem and then create a solution uh, against that false problem. Now, back to the Prime Minister's gas problem, which is probably another story, but we don't want to go there. Um, forecasts for strong winds later on. Uh, the pr- I had to use that, Malcolm. Price of right. gas... And it, thank you. I'm going to hear the raucous laughter from no one. Uh, price of gas in Australia has fallen from $8 to $10 a gigajoule to $5 a gigajoule due to COVID-19. Exports to Asia plummeted. Uh, in the US, for example, it's $3 a gigajoule. Now, I see the LNP trying to take credit for reducing the gas price. Do you think that's a bit rich? It is a bit rich, unless they're taking credit for causing the COVID uh, recession, which is bordering on a depression in some countries around the world. Mm. So that's what's caused the decrease in the use of coal, the use of gas, the use of uh, oil. Because there's less demand, there's less industrial activity, there's less transport, which is a, a huge user of uh, oil and petroleum products. So that's all it is. Mm. Um, so if, if they want to take credit for, for causing the gas, dec- gas price decrease, they need to take credit for causing the depression around the world. 
Now, I went for a drive on the weekend. It was a long weekend in Queensland. I went to Harvey Bay and I saw a big pick of uh, Pauline there. She got the guts to say what we're thinking, uh, which means there's an election, uh, October 31 in Queensland. Uh, polls today, I heard on the, on the radio, uh, was saying that uh, it's uh, they're leading the, the ALP or the government uh, 52 to 48. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think um, uh, the LNP has a chance or do you think they'll just slip by the wayside once again? I was asked straight after the federal election, in fact, the night of the federal election, what it meant that uh, Scott Morrison and the LNP got home in the federal election. Uh, and does that mean a sound of warning for the Labor Party in Queensland? And I said, no, not at all. Because if you look at South Australia, they had an atrocious Labor government there, and the LNP was so poor. As, yeah, the LNP was so poor as the um, as the opposition in South Australia that that atrocious Labor government stayed in power for for three terms. I think that was two terms longer than it should have. And and uh, in Victoria, we had Dan Andrews's government face the last election with 21 members of Parliament uh, under under charges for or investigation for misappropriation of funds, taxpayer funds. And what did they do? They increased their majority in, in Parliament because despite that hanging over them, because the LNP in opposition in Victoria is so poor, what we've seen up here is the LNP opposition is so poor up here as well that they don't provide much of an alternative. But when you look at the policies, the, the Labor Party has brought in the further stealing of property rights from farmers, as we talked about a minute ago. It's also brought in an, an abortion policy which enables abor- abortion right up to term, full term. It's brought in new reg- regulations which will destroy farming along the East Coast. Um, it is just heinous what the Labor Party is doing, and yet the Liberals still can't touch it. But there's one other complication, and that is COVID, because COVID tends to help the incumbent uh, because it's perceived as an external threat, so everyone gets behind the incumbent. Um, we're starting to see Anastasia Palaszczuk seen as hypocritical and dishonest, and her Labor machine as exactly a heartless, ruthless machine that is running COVID policies that are hurting the state drastically mm. and yet trying to look good. Um, and it's fooled some of the people. Some people think Anastasia Palaszczuk has, has kept them safe. The reverse is happening because Anastasia Palaszczuk and the labor machine are destroying this state's economy. While we need a sensible policies for managing COVID, not for being managed by COVID. And so we're gutting our state, but still the LNP is so damn quiet. And so what we what we've been doing is exposing the the, uh, the terrible the terrible policies of the uh, labor machine in the state. So I don't think you know. You've also seen. You asked me for my opinion. Uh, Northern Territory had a marked swing against Labor, even though that Labor is incumbent up there. So it's hard to tell what's really going on. I hear a lot of people as I move around saying that they are sick and tired of Labor and we can't have any more Labor. But they're not. They're all saying Frecklington's so damn poor. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we will get an LNP minority government that will have, um, that'll have some sense about it or less damage to it than the Labor Party. But we'll need a, a strong crossbench from one nation in particular, and that will be able to then uh, hold, put a check on both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party because we don't have an upper house here. Mm. So we need the balance of power in a, in a medium-sized party like One Nation so that we can stop the, the majority party or the main party 
from from doing whatever it wants. Uh, one final thing, Malcolm. Uh, little joke. Knock knock. Who's there? Deb Frecklington. Deb who? <laughs> Uh, Look, thank you very much. All the best with your travels around Australia as you've been looking and talking and meeting all the the good folks of uh, of Queensland and the Outback. Uh, Great chatting, and we'll do this again in the uh, next few weeks. Same here. Thank you very much, Mike. Look forward to it. And that's it for BNAP Today, Thursday, October the 8th, 2020. Be safe, be kind. I'm Mike Ryan.